Good morning. Do me a favor, will you? We've all heard that before, haven't we? How about this? Honey, do this for me, please. Well, this morning, as your preacher, I'm going to ask a favor of you. And everybody says, oh boy, where's he going with this? Right? I want us all to think this morning, including myself, especially myself, about doing the great favor to all of ourselves and to those people outside these doors, doing the great favor of being hospitable. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Do me a favor. Hospitality. Hospitality is very important. Having favor is very important, and we're going to notice that in just a few moments. I want us to look at a brief survey of the word favor in the Bible as we begin this morning. Favor. And if we look at the idea of having favor with God, of course, we're going to understand that that is extremely important. Do you want favor with God? I want favor with God because what's the alternative? I think we know. We don't want to have disfavor with God. We want to have favor with God. We want to look at a few passages in the Old Testament. Just survey these. We're not even going to turn to them. You can see them on the screen there. But you look at Genesis 18, verse 3. Abraham, when he's entertaining his heavenly guest, what does he say in Genesis 18, verse 3? My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Look at Numbers 11, verses 11 and also verse 15. Moses, Moses asks some rhetorical questions here. Why have I not found favor in your sight? Question, did Moses find favor in God's sight? He did, didn't he? But Moses didn't feel like he had found favor in God's sight at this particular moment because he's dealing with all these grumbling Israelites. So he asked this rhetorical question, why have I not found favor in your sight? Well, Moses did, actually. You look also in verse number 15, if I have found favor in your sight. Look at 1 Samuel 2, verse 26, dealing with Samuel. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and men. And in my notes, I've got underlined, I've got bold, the words, or the word, and, because Samuel is an example of somebody who had favor both with the Lord and men. So hold that thought for just a moment. Keep looking. Job 10, verse 12. Job says to God, you have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. Who did Job understand granted him favor in life? God did. And Job, of all people, Job chapter 10, what is Job dealing with? All sorts of problems, isn't he? And yet he still understands, he still acknowledges that God had given him favor. That's a good lesson for us to make sure and take to heart. Keep reading. Daniel, Daniel 1, verse number 9 now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Who did that? God. 
did that. I want us to also look at some psalms about the idea of the Lord's favor. Psalm 5, verse number 12. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Psalm 89, verse 17. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. What does that mean? Our horn, our power. Favor from God. Verse one, uh, chapter 102, verse 13. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. Tell me, who's Zion today? The church. The church has the favor of God. Psalm 106, verse number 4. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have towards your people. Oh, visit me with your salvation. And finally, Psalm 119, verse 58. I entreated your favor with my whole heart, every ounce of my being. Lord, I'm seeking your favor. Be merciful to me according to your word. Do we ever pray such as that? We should. We need to be praying things exactly such as that because we need God's favor, don't we? And we need his mercy. We need his love. We need his grace. I want us to think about favor in man's sight for a moment. In the Old Testament, Genesis 39 verse 29 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And what did he give to the keeper of the prison? Or in, in the eyes of the keeper of the prison, what did he give? He gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Exodus 3, verse 21. Also, Exodus 11, verse 3, and Exodus 12, verse 36. We find over and over again, God is giving favor. To whom? To the Israelites. He's giving them favor in the sight of whom? The Egyptians. If you remember, if you read through Exodus, what were those Egyptians doing as the Israelites were making their preparation to leave? They were bringing them things. Remember, reading Exodus, God gave them favor. What about this? 1 Samuel 16, verse 22. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Do you think God was at work there? You better believe it. David found favor in God's sight too, didn't he? What about this? We already mentioned 1 Samuel 2, verse 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Samuel was favorable, of course, to the Lord, but also among men. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, and I want us to look at the New Testament, and I want us to look at Luke 2, verse 52. Because guess what? Samuel is a type of someone else that comes along in the New Testament. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, if you look at these two verses, go back to 1 Samuel 2, verse 26, and also Luke 2, verse 52, you're going to find extremely 
similar grammatical construction makes perfect sense. Samuel, in this case, is a type of someone coming after him who is Jesus Christ. A similar picture, if you will, an Old Testament picture of somebody who's going to come later who's even better, we might say, Jesus Christ. Samuel found favor both with God and men. The Lord Jesus Christ found favor with both God and men. Now, why do we look at all this this morning? We just saw two examples of people growing in favor with God and man, Samuel and Jesus Christ. Do you think that is a coincidence? Not at all. There is an important lesson here for us to know, and that is... Samuel, Christ, Christian. Christian, you should have favor both with God and men around you. Now, that said, we want to throw in a caveat. Clearly, we're not talking about, now we should go be everybody's best friend to the extent of they're living in sin and we don't say a word to them, we just... Uh, tolerance, all this, these newfangled ideas that society is pushing today, that's not what we're talking about here. Did Jesus tolerate sin? He sure didn't. He preached against it, didn't he? But also, what did he do? He came for that very purpose to seek and save the lost. He went to those sinners, he sat down and ate with them, and he tried to bring them to himself. It takes a certain amount and a certain degree of favor in order to do that. You see, when we talk about one of our, if not the chief missions of Christians, is it not to do exactly what Jesus Christ was doing, and that is to seek and save the lost? And tell me, how can we do that if we don't have favor with the people around us? That is, somebody sees Chase Green... Somebody sees any member in this church and they see them and they say, you know what, that's somebody I want to be like. Do they say that or do they say, I tell you what, that Chase Green, he is a low-down scoundrel. I don't want to be anything like him. You see, we've got to have some sort of favor, don't we? We've got to have some sort of favor with those on the outside. Clearly, we need to have favor with God, but I want us also to think about this morning, we need to have favor with those around us. What did Paul say in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, Paul says that he became all things to all men by all means that he might save some. You see, Paul was a student of people. Paul... Somebody likes to fish? Sure, I'll go fishing with you, Paul. Or, or uh, Paul, sure, I'll go fish, fishing with you. Why? Because he wanted to convert people. Somebody likes artwork? Sure, I'll go look at your paintings, etc., etc. That's the idea that Paul is getting across there. He became all things to all men that by all means he might save some. He studied people's personalities and he got to know people. We need to do that as well if we ever want to hope to be able to convert people to Christ and his gospel. Now, 
Let me say this. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, we've looked at the last two weeks in our Wednesday night Bible study. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, basically, he says, I care very little about the court of public opinion. He even says, look, I care very little about my own opinion as it comes to matters of salvation in the sense that ultimately whose opinion on those matters really matters. God's opinion. What God says is what really matters when it comes to our soul's salvation. Not Paul's, except for the fact that Paul was inspired, but not of him, his own self is what we're saying here. And, and certainly not the court of public opinion. Okay, so do we have a contradiction then with what I'm telling you this morning? Paul said he cared little about public opinion. He didn't say he didn't care about it at all. And that's where we need to make the distinction. Well, if Samuel had favor with all the people, if Christ had favor with all the people, Christians too must have favor with all the people. And I want us to look at Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. Acts 2, verses 46 and 47, we find these words written by the inspired Luke concerning the early church. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity or singularity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Luke just said that we have to have favor with all the people, just like Christ did, just like Samuel did. They had favor with all the people. They're praising God, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Church, do me a favor. Let's talk about our hospitality for a moment. Do me the favor, if you will, of hospitality. Practicing good hospitality. Why? Because it's going to help us do our job as Christians right? It's going to help us seek and save the lost. In fact, that's what Jesus Christ did. He practiced hospitality in a sense. We're going to show that in just a minute to seek and save those who are lost. Hospitality is a critical ingredient in the recipe that is practical Christian living. I want you to consider for a moment what the Bible says about hospitality. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, etc., etc. We see something similar in Titus 1, verses 7 through 8. For a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, etc. We see furthermore, when we talk about general Christians... In Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, the older women are to teach the younger women to be home makers, among other things that they are to teach them. And what does that deal with? Hospitality, right? And, and making a safe place for the, the nurturing and admin, admonishing of children as well, uh, if that be the case in the home. Proverbs 31 
The Proverbs 31 lady. Most of the things that are mentioned in Proverbs 31, what are they dealing with? Or a lot of the things, at least. The home. Is our home important as Christians? You see, a lot of times I think we think of Christianity in terms of, well, what we're doing right now. We come to a church building and we worship, and we should be thinking of Christianity in terms of our collective worship together. But what about our home? What's going on in the four walls of our homes is just as important as what's going on right here in the four walls of this church building. Let's prove that. We've just proved it a little bit in those four references that we have looked at. And I want to tell you this morning, you can use your home as a tool, a very important tool in the toolbox, which is the toolbox of trying our best to reach people for the gospel. And by the way, not just those on the outside, but also one another and encouraging one another by spending that time together. Our home is a tool that we can use in that spiritual toolbox. Look at Acts 2, verses 46 and 47 for the second time. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now, we don't have a temple today, but we do have a church building. Christians, think of your Christianity in terms not only of a church building. One time I preached a sermon called, uh, and it was playing on the, the words, think outside the box. And I preached a sermon called, think, think outside the church building. Think of our Christianity not only in terms of what takes place here at this building, but we also need to think about what takes place outside this building, including from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. I want you to look at Acts 20, verses 19 and 20. Acts 20, verses 19 and 20. Paul was serving the Lord, and it says there, with humility, with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the church at Ephesus. He is weeping with the elders here at Ephesus. Why? Because he's about to leave that congregation after having spent a great deal of time with them. And he's weeping and he's calling these elders together and he's warning them and he's telling them to feed the church of God, which the Holy Spirit has purchased, or which uh, Christ has purchased with his own blood and the Holy Spirit has made them overseers of it. He's telling them all these things. And in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 20 of Acts, Paul was serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me because the plotting of the Jews. He says this, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you. And here is again the same idea publicly and from house to house. Think of our Christianity in terms of what happens here 
in what happens in our homes as well. Not only that, but if you really look at that word publicly, Paul was out there on the streets preaching. He preached wherever he could preach. That's a, a, an important lesson for us to consider. Brethren, we've got to get back to being in one another's homes more often. We need to restore that, don't we? And I'll say that to say this. Because this household, home is a tool in our spiritual toolbox, and we think about the threefold, as it is often summed up, word or work of the church, evangelism, teaching people the gospel, edification, fellowship, and encouragement of the brethren, and dare I even say benevolence? Helping people? And I realize that last one, in today's society, we have to be very careful. And there are safety concerns that we have to deal with, but maybe we could get creative. But when we talk about the threefold work of the church, evangelism, edification, and benevolence, could not our homes be used as important tools to accomplish that? They can. First century Christians did that. I want to say this carefully. Because everywhere I've been, occasionally things like this have happened. I say that. I don't know that it has happened here. But there's always the potential for it. And so I want to be careful, but I want you to listen carefully. Preacher, you didn't come visit me. Elders, you didn't come visit me. And there have been times when someone was in the hospital and nobody knew. Nobody informed the elders. Nobody informed the preacher. And feelings still get hurt because the preacher didn't come by or the elders didn't come by or my best friend in the church didn't come by. If we want to be visited, we need to invite. Culture today is far different than it was 50 or 60 years ago. 50 or 60 years ago, someone's walking down the street and someone is on the front porch like was very often the case back then and is sadly not as often the case today, and I, I've heard a country song or two lamenting that fact, and I agree. I wish it would go back to that. Uh, there's a country song called Mayberry, and he, he's lamenting the fact he wishes it was like Mayberry again, and people were just sitting on their front porch drinking an ice-cold glass of tea or what have you. I wish society would get back to that, but here's the thing. 50 or 60 years ago, you come walking down the street or riding your bike or what have you, and you see people on the front porch, it would have been incredibly rude for you not to stop by and have a talk. Am I right? Today, especially with the younger generations, especially, it's the absolute opposite. 
There are many people today who have this mindset. If you invite yourself over, that's considered very rude. Is that not the case? Why is that the case? Because our ideas culturally, as it pertains to hospitality, have changed. Not everybody's, but many people in in the collective idea of society has. Now, why do I say that? Because this preacher loves to visit people. But this preacher does not like to invite himself over. Except for very extenuating circumstances where it's absolutely necessary. Why do you say that, preacher? And I will say this in the past, again, not necessarily here. At least I haven't heard about it. But in the past, there have been times when the scenario that I just brought up happened. Preacher, you didn't come see me in the hospital. Why didn't you come see me? Nobody told me. I would have loved to come see you in the hospital. Why didn't you tell me? We need to be careful about that. You should have seen it on Facebook. That's passive aggressive because there's no guarantee that the preacher is going to see that Facebook notification. And it's no excuse. We need to be visiting one another. I've, again, in the past, I've mentioned visitation programs. And there was very little interest. Very little interest in a visitation program. Why? I don't know the answer, but here's what I suspect. I think it's we're too busy as a society. We're too busy as a society. Maybe we do need to get back to Mayberry and slow down and visit one another the way that the Bible speaks of it. Someone says, okay, I see what you're saying. You know, I've thought about that. I wasn't so sure, but I, okay, I see it, I guess. But I tell you what, my house is nothing like what I see on HGTV. And I always laugh when I watch HGTV. And when I owned my own home in in Louisiana, we loved watching HGTV. Why? Because we're getting ideas. How can we remodel this thing so that when we eventually sell it, it can help us out? Except when I'm watching HGTV, I make $20,000 a year. My wife makes... $15,000 a year, our budget, $2 million for this house. What? It makes no sense. I'm not a smart man, but I can do math. I digress about HGTV. A lot of that is for show. They're making money off those TV programs. Who cares if your house is not an HGTV house? That's not the point. And if that's the standard, count me out. And by the way, the house that has been provided to us here, we are very appreciative of it. It is a nice house and uh, a comfortable house. And they've taken care of several things since we moved here about a year ago. 
They didn't have to do that, but they have, and we appreciate that. Such as air conditioners and uh, refrigerator when we first moved in, things like that. We appreciate that. But it's not a multi-million dollar house, right? That doesn't matter. What matters is we use that house to the glory of God. That's what matters. We don't need to or don't have to be up to speed with the latest black backsplash trend which changes every five years so that you can spend a whole lot more money every time it changes. You don't have to have the latest backsplash trend or the, the latest tile floor or wood floor or laminate floor or whatever's in style, uh, dyed concrete or whatever that's called is in style now, I think. So my wife tells me. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're spending time together, and some of that time should be spent here. Some of that time should be spent in the annex building. Some of that time should be spent in one another's homes. When we went to the evangelism seminar a couple weekends ago, uh, Brother Rob Whitaker and I owe so much to that man because I just happened to walk into his evangelism seminar at Polishing the Pulpit my first year of preaching school, and that man changed how I evangelized. In fact, I was not evangelizing. And I walked into his seminar, and I became an evangelist. That's one of the reasons I went to preaching school, if you want to know the truth. Because I knew I was not evangelizing when I should have been. And I walk into this seminar, Rob Whitaker's, and I have been to it three, if not four times since. Why? Because that man lit a fire under me. And he taught me how to have Bible studies, how to teach people the gospel. And one of the things that he mentions in this seminar is that Jesus Christ was an evangelist. He came to seek and save the lost, and here's how he did it. Are you listening? Here is how Jesus did it. There are four things that Jesus did when he entered into a home. Number one, he identified the sinners. When you have time later on, look at Luke 5, verse 29 and following. Luke 5, verses 29 and following Jesus Christ identified the sinners with the goal of converting them, with saving the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And eventually, as we talked about in Bible class this morning, Gentiles come into the fold as well. Saving the lost, that was Jesus' goal. He identified those who were lost. Luke 5, 29 and following, Levi, what does he do? He makes a great feast in his house. He invites Jesus to his house Jesus sat down with the sinners to teach them. See, it wasn't about the meal, per se. It was about seizing that opportunity to teach. Number two, Jesus invested in people. Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. A Pharisee made a meal for Jesus Jesus goes to his house, 
and a sinful woman comes to Jesus and anoints him with fragrant oil. Now Jesus could have said, How dare you touch me, you sinful woman? And that's not at all what Jesus said. Jesus invested the time that it took. And he showed her the love and care necessary that ultimately she's humbling herself in this manner. What does he end up doing? He ends up forgiving her of her sins. Luke 7, 36 through 50. Jesus Christ invested in people. Number three, Jesus Christ interacted with people. Luke 14, verses 1 and following. Jesus went into the house of another Pharisee and ate with him on the Sabbath day. And someone came in who was sick with the dropsy. What did Jesus do? Did he ignore him? Maybe if I pretend like I didn't see him, he'll go away. It's not what Jesus did at all, did he? He interacted with him. He healed him. Finally, Jesus invited people. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus invites himself to Zacharias's house, or Zacchaeus's house, rather. Today, I must stay at your house. Well, there you go, preacher. Invite yourself. I'm not Jesus. This preacher prefers to be invited. When I, was, when I was a kid, I was, again, I was taught it was rude to invite yourself. Jesus says, today I must stay at your house. After this whole interaction with Zacchaeus, what do we find Jesus saying again? The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus' purpose was to come and seek and save the lost. Are we involving ourselves in that same mission? Because we can and we must. And there are lots of expedient ways to do that. And one of those expedient ways, in fact, a way that we've seen several examples in the Bible is we can use our home to the glory of God. Church, do me a favor. Practice the things that will increase your favor with all the folks around us. Samuel, favor with God and man. Jesus Christ, favor with God and man. In Acts 2, verses 46 and 47, the church, favor with God and man. Let's do the things that will increase our favor in this community so that when people 
utter the words, Church of Christ. It's not a byword. It's not a word, oh, the only ones going to heaven, stay away from them. Now we've got to teach the truth. We've also got to teach it with love and tact. And there's a fine line there. There's a delicate balance there. But I'll tell you this, they need to know us as people who love one another and love them. And then when we open this book and we teach them the hard things that they need to know, they're going to know we love them. And it'll be a whole lot easier to prick them in their hearts. The Word's going to do that anyway. We need to do the things that will increase our favor in this community so that we have more and more opportunities to reach people with the hope of the gospel. When we're out and about, we need to act like a Christian. We need to act like a Christian should act. We need to have a good attitude. We don't need to act like the sky is falling. Folks, I'm not happy with things that are going on in this country. But as a Christian, the sky is not falling. It's going to be okay. Because we're seeking a better country. Far better country. Which is heaven. So we need to act like a Christian should act. We need to have the right attitude. We need to have hope and joy and peace and love and mercy in our lives. Not only do we need to act like a Christian, we also need to talk like a Christian. Speak like a Christian. We need to serve like a Christian. We need to spend time together like Christians. Because our influence is important. When people look at us, they look at a reflection, an image of Christ. Are we Christ? No. Are we perfect like he was? No. But we're supposed to be imitating Christ. And when people see us, they should be seeing an imitation of Christ. So I want to encourage you one more time this morning. Have favor. Favor with God, favor with man. Open up your home and use it to the glory of God. Use it for opportunities such as what we have talked about this morning. And let's seek and save the lost. Because every one of us knows people who need the gospel. Thank you for your attention this morning. If you have never obeyed the gospel, this sermon is for you. Obey the gospel. Believe on Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was given for you. He came to seek and save you. Just as he came to seek and save me. Just as he came to seek and save all of us. Believe on him. Become a believer. Repent of your sins. Change your mind, change your actions. Make up your mind, I'm going to live like a Christian. Confess your belief in Christ. Put on Christ in baptism for the remission of your sins, to wash your sins away. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism does also now save us. Just like that sinful world that was lifted up in the waters of the flood,
wherein only eight souls were saved, baptism also now saves us. Not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And that last part that sometimes this preacher has forgotten, and dare I not forget it, because it is of utmost importance, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason baptism does anything. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would of all men be most miserable. Jesus Christ died for you. He rose again for you. Obey his gospel. Think about your life this morning. If you need to come in obedience to his gospel or for any other thing, we ask that you please come as together we stand and as we sing.